You can take your Bible and you can open up to Genesis chapter 40 because we're going to be going through a lot of God's word today. Uh, You'll notice that we are looking at Genesis chapter 40 and 41. And if you do the quick calculations, you'll notice that that is 80 verses. And against better judgment, I decided to do two chapters today. So we are going to have to look at God's word uh, deeply, quickly. But what you'll notice as we go through these two chapters is that there is a lot of repetition. And so we're going to read a lot, but we're also going to be able to summarize a lot as, as so much of it is repeated. And I think we'll be able to move through a lot of this here, and I trust we'll be able to draw out exactly what God wants us to see. And and really what I want to do this afternoon is I want to do really two things um, in these two chapters. Now, I want you to hear that word two uh, very frequently, and I want that to stick in your mind even right now, because two is a literary device or a a couplet that we're going to see throughout these two chapters. It's going to come into play quite a bit. And what I've done is I've tried to capture the sense of this text uh, by getting two points uh, today for us uh, with two sub points that mirror each other. And I hope you see that I'm trying to emphasize two very clearly. Couplets play a large part in the dream portion of this narrative, and it actually draws us all the way back into the beginning of the Joseph story in chapter 37, where Joseph had his dreams. And remember how many dreams Joseph had? Two. And both of those dreams essentially were pointing towards the very same reality. What we're going to see here in chapters 40 and 41 is that we're going to see two more people in chapter 40 who have dreams. Their dreams are very similar to one another. They do have very different conclusions, but they're very similar. And then we'll see in chapter 41 that Pharaoh is going to have two dreams. And we're going to read in chapter 41, Joseph is going to tell Pharaoh that the reason this happens in twos is because it is fixed by God. It's firm. It's settled. It's a way in which God is communicating, this is going to happen. Nothing is going to stop this plan. I have purposed this. I have planned this. This is exactly what is going to happen. And so what I want to show you here is really two things. I want to highlight, first and foremost, the sovereignty of God over the circumstances of life. Okay? That's number one, and that's the most important thing we're going to see in these two chapters. The sovereignty of God over the circumstances of life. And the second thing I want to do is I want to highlight the consistency of character that God desires in our lives. So the sovereignty of God is the overarching theme or thread of this really book and Bible, but the story of Joseph. Joseph is not ultimately the main character. God is the main character. God is the hero of the story. And yet, in the plan of God, he wants us to look at Joseph and to pay attention to Joseph and to see how Joseph responds to the sovereignty of God and how it produces a kind of consistency of character in his life. Those two things are wedded in this passage. Really what Joseph is doing is he is giving us the key to consistency. 
to consistent character, to consistent convictions, to consistent Christian living. And we need to hear this because really what he gives us is the opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us if you really want to live life well, you need to look within. You need to believe in yourself You need to accomplish your dreams. You need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Believe that it's all upon you. You can do it. You have the power within yourself. And the Joseph narrative blows that idea right out of the water. Because what we find out is that Joseph is placed in impossible situations that he has no control over, that he can't get himself out of, and he's entirely reliant and dependent upon someone outside of himself. And yet at the same time, he is responsible for how he lives in his circumstances. What enables us to cultivate a life of consistent character is our conviction about the sovereignty of God over the circumstances of our lives. If you ever look at your life and wonder why maybe you feel like you're on a bit of an emotional roller coaster ride, maybe you're constantly on a spiritual roller coaster ride, maybe you feel like every time life changes, you just, you, you just feel like you're in a, a valley and then on a, a mountaintop and there seems to be no stability in your life, I, I want to argue from the text today that is, in, that is in large part because you do not fully understand the sovereignty of God over the circumstances of your life. And when you do, it has a stabilizing effect in your life. It secures you, it anchors you, and it enables you to live a life of consistency. Consistency in your character and convictions. To put it simply, and I hope maybe memorably, the key to consistent character is to remember the God who remembers you. Let me say that again. The key to consistency in your life when it comes to your Christian character, your integrity, your Christian living, it's to remember the God who remembers you. We see that repeatedly as we move through these two chapters. So let me show you first this, that the key to consistent character is to remember the God who remembers you when enduring the pit of a prison. Now, chapter 40 pulls us back into the context. It says this in verse 1, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Just stop there for a moment. Joseph, remember, is in prison. He is in a, a pit. He's in a kind of dungeon. It's not a nice place to be. And remember why he's there. He's been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. 
Back in chapter 39, we saw this. He has been persecuted, in a sense, for righteousness' sake. He is suffering because of his obedience to God. He's suffering because he was fleeing sin. He fled temptation, and where did it get him? It got him wrongfully accused and unjustly thrown in this pit, in this prison. At this point in time, Joseph is about 28 years old. He's going to be brought before the Pharaoh two years after these events. And in chapter 41, after that two years, we learn that he's 30 years old when he stands before Pharaoh. That puts him at 28 years old right now. And just consider this as you're processing Joseph's life for a minute. Joseph has been in Egypt either as a slave in the house of Potiphar or in jail for the last 11 years of his life. That's one third of his life. And he was sold into slavery by his brothers. His life has has not been an easy life. In many ways, it's been an unbelievably painful life, probably physically, emotionally. Now, we see him, and he's enduring the pit of a prisoner, again, completely unjustly. By the way, we, we use this phrase all the time. You ever think about this? Man, life is the pits. I was trying to figure out, like, did they steal? Did that come right from here? I don't know. I couldn't trace down kind of the etymology of that phrase, but I think it probably does. I think that 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 comes from right here because we use this phrase in our life, you know, like spending your birthday working alone is the pits. And and I looked it up in one dictionary. Uh, The Collins Dictionary says that this word, this idea is slang for the worst possible place, person, or thing. Joseph's life is literally the pits. And if you think about it, he's just been moved from one pit, it's where he was, right, thrown in by his brothers, to another pit, and this has been his life essentially for 11 years. Slave, prisoner, living in a pit. I just wonder if you can think about this in relation to your life, because listen, sometimes life is really hard. When your life is the pits, how do you respond Do you respond uh, like we're often inclined to do with maybe constant complaining? Or do you respond like Joseph with a kind of consistent character? As we look a little bit closer at Joseph, we learn some things. Like Joseph, we must live for the Lord. That's the first thing we need to do. If you want to endure when you're in the, the metaphorical pit of a prison, you need to live for the Lord, consistently live for the Lord. In, in chapter 39, we, we read at the end of chapter 39, last week we saw that, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It says, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now listen, Joseph's success and prosperity is all because of the hand of the Lord, but listen, that's not separated from Joseph's faithfulness to the Lord. Okay? Joseph is standing out among his peers. It doesn't matter the, the, the context. It doesn't matter the circumstances. Wherever Joseph is, he has one thought in his mind. I will live here, right here, for the Lord. I will work as unto the Lord. 
and he just goes after it, right? He just, he just puts his head down, and he works hard, and he does so with character and integrity, so much so that those who are in charge of him, they put him in charge, and they pay no attention to anything going on. That's how confident they are in the character and integrity of this man, Joseph. Can the same be said about you and me? Do we stand out for our character and our integrity, our work ethic, our trustworthiness, our honorableness? In verse 6, we see something interesting in how he's living for the Lord. We see a man who is in the pit of prison who doesn't deserve to be there. If there's anybody who has a right to complain, it's Joseph. I think we can all agree on that. And what we see here is a man who is not self-consumed. He, he's, not, he, he's not consumed with self-pity. He's not wallowing in his sorrow and his circumstances. He's not sitting off in a corner, you know, huddled up in a fetal position, you know, crying, rocking back and forth, saying, woe is me. He's not fixed on his own trouble and circumstances. In fact, we see a man who is looking at other people and desiring to be a blessing to them. These two men who are in honorable positions in Pharaoh's courts, they had significant roles, a chief cupbearer and a chief baker. These were the men who were entrusted in many ways to help protect the Pharaoh's life. They're making sure that nobody is trying to poison the king. And it appears, we don't have all the information, but it appears that somebody was trying to work behind the scenes to assassinate the pharaoh, and they're trying to use food, trying to poison it in some way, to the point where both of these men, it looks like maybe they're in on this, and so he throws them in jail. They've got this offense against pharaoh. They're thrown in jail. And here they are. They've had these dreams, and they're troubled. And Joseph sees them troubled, and he comes up to them to find out what's going on. I think we are tempted by suffering to stop caring about the distress of others. So often, our own suffering can be all-encompassing, and we can be so fixated on our circumstances and on our own pain, we can stop seeing the needs of others. He's not I noticed this, he's not urgently looking for a way to get out of prison, but to be faithful to do what the Lord has put in front of him. That's not to say he's happy about his situation. We're going to see later that he, he knows this is unjust and wrong and that he should be out of this, this situation. But here, he's not concerned with the things that are beyond his control. He's simply concerned with the things that are right here, that are under his influence, the things that he actually has control over. You may not have any control over the circumstances in your life, but you have control over how you respond to those circumstances. You have control and responsibility before God for how you choose to respond to the circumstances that he is sovereign over in your life. I think this is so helpful to see the way Joseph operates in this context because I think, I think for many of us, I know I've talked to many of you, some of you have grown up in, in maybe Christian contexts where, where a lot of pressure has been applied to you to maybe be a missionary or to go to full-time ministry, and, and some of you maybe still wrestle with some kind of guilt that you're, you're not enough. You're not enough of a Christian. You're not faithful enough if you're not on the mission field like, like the Gabriels. Or, or if you're not 
in full-time ministry, giving your life for the Lord or preaching the word of God. And in some context, you've actually been looked down upon as if you're some kind of a second-class Christian citizen. And you know, what, what this reminds us of here is that that's absolutely, fundamentally not true. You see, being faithful where you are, being aware of the promises of God, what he's doing in this world, and simply doing what you're called to do wherever God has you is what matters most. And you never know how God is going to use your simple obedience and the consistency of your character to influence people for him. All I'm simply saying is this. So I think so we put some immense pressure on ourselves and maybe some unhealthy or unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And what God is saying to you is this. If you want to be faithful, just be faithful wherever you are. Just live for the Lord where you are. And just again, maybe notice what he doesn't do. Um, He's not complaining about circumstances. He's not criticizing others who have put him there. And he has every right to do this, you could argue. And, And he's not doing this. We can often do this, right, in our suffering. He's not finding comfort in sin. What's his response? He's operating with Christ like character that blesses others and seeks to serve them seeks to honor the Lord. He's working as unto the Lord. Look, I just want to encourage you. There's so much ministry that can happen when we just remember the God who remembers us. And that's exactly, I think, what's gripping Joseph's heart. He knows that he is here under the sovereign hand of God. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't see the end of the story, but he believes God is sovereign over it. See, how do you know that, Ian? Because I've already read chapter 37. God has already given him two dreams. God has already given him confidence in his word. God has spoken. God has spoken clearly about where he's going to take Joseph. And I believe with all my heart, Joseph believes that. 11 years, and he's holding on, living for the Lord. That's what Joseph did. And he teaches us next, listen, to depend on the Lord. You want to endure the the pits of a prison You need to learn to depend on the Lord. You notice his response when when they say to him, we have had these dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossoms, uh, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. You can see how his dream relates to his position before Pharaoh. And notice verse 11. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, I just want you to see this. This cupbearer, he's the first one to divulge his dream. There's kind of an implication here. It's almost like this cupbearer knows he's innocent, like he's done nothing wrong, and, and, and so he's suffering unjustly. And the interpretation of the dream seems to confirm that. It's interesting, the chief baker hasn't divulged anything yet, and notice when he chooses to and why he chooses to. 
Look down to verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, this guy's a scoundrel. He's like, okay, I'll wait and see how this goes for you, and then I'll tell you what happened. He just, he just thinks this is going to go well for him. It's almost the idea, the idea is almost like, listen, this guy's up to no good. This guy's probably guilty. There's something going on here. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. That did not go the way he planned. And, and then we, we read on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Here we see that instead of allowing his suffering to infect him with doubt, Joseph is a man who relies on God's word. And that kept his faith alive, even in darkness. You, you have to imagine, right? As Joseph hears these two dreams, and he, under, he, he knows that his God is the God who gives dreams, the God who interprets dreams. He knows, you, you have to think here, when Joseph hears these dreams, instantly his mind's going back to the dreams that God gave him. And in a sense, as if God's confirming, I'm going to give you some answers for these men, and I'm trusting. You, be you believe I'm the God who interprets dreams. Joseph, just wait. Just wait. I'm going to be faithful to do what I promised I would do to you in your dreams. All his life, Joseph has learned the key to consistency in his convictions and his character. It was to depend upon the Lord. And so he tells them the dream's meaning, and as we saw, each of their dreams relate to their role, and, and what we find out is that everything happens exactly the way that Joseph interpreted they would by the, by the hand of God. Joseph's response to these officials reminds us to consider our trials as opportunity granted to us by God. I think sometimes, again, we get so tunnel-visioned in our trials, we forget that God is actually working in our trials, that God is doing something not only through us, he's doing something in us. I was thinking about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He was a man who suffered greatly. And in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, listen to what he says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, listen to this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Joseph, I think, believed this with all of his heart. 
He knew the stories of Abraham and Isaac and his father Jacob. He knew that God could take someone that was, that was literally almost physically dead and he could bring forth new life. The idea of God being able to raise the dead is, is grounded in the book of Genesis. He knew that as he was in a pit, listen, that pit in many ways symbolizes this picture of death, helplessness and hopelessness, but he, he may have despaired at point in time, even of life itself, but he never gave up hope. He always looked forward to what God had said, and it showed in his life. I'm going to throw this on the screen, a, a, a quote here, or a, a statement, I should say. Uh, Suffering stimulates our sympathy for others. Disappointment strengthens our dependence upon God's word and his grace. Don't ever miss what God is trying to teach you while you may find yourself in a pit. You know, it's often been said that character is who you are when no one's looking. I think that's absolutely true. But I also think that character is who you are regardless of your circumstances. When you don't get the answer you want, that reveals your character. When your circumstances don't change as desperately as you may want them to, that's going to reveal your character. When you're pleading with God, God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen? God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? God, I don't understand. I can't see. I can't make sense of this. It's too hard. It's too painful. I can't endure anymore. And God says, no, or God says, wait. In those moments, how you respond is going to reveal your character. It's the waiting, I think, that tests our dependence the most, isn't it? It's the, the waiting is just, it's the most painful part of not having answers. The unknown. The waiting tests are depending, and if we let it, it will cultivate a consistency of character that can weather every pit that we may find ourselves having to endure. And I want you to see, I skipped over some verses. I think you probably caught that. Look at, look at Joseph's heart in this. Look at verse 14. After he gives the cupbearer the good news, he says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. He appeals to the cupbearer to show him, first of all, to remember him. I want you to pay attention to that. But there's a word here that you can't see in the original. He, he says, do me this kindness. And the word in Hebrew is a very important word in the Hebrew vocabulary. It's the word chesed, which means covenant faithfulness. Show me this loving kindness. And any time a Hebrew thought of that word, guess who they thought of? The covenant faithfulness of Yahweh God. That God was going to be faithful. There's a sense in here in which 
He's hoping this man will do the right thing, but I think we can read between the lines and he's saying, listen, I'm putting all my faith, I'm depending entirely upon the God of covenant faithfulness, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. That is my God. I know who he is. I know what he's done. And I know he, will, he was with me in 39. And though we don't hear the words, he was with me, what we see in the life of Joseph is that he believes with all of his heart, God is with him. That he will not leave him or forsake him. And that's so, so important because look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. God will be faithful to do what he said he would do. And while you wait for God's deliverance, you can be sure that his delays are being governed by covenant faithfulness, tender love, and sovereign wisdom. Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Can you hear what Paul is saying this side of the cross? It doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter how hard your circumstances. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you and you have every reason to depend upon him. He will not let you go and he will never let you down. Don't succumb to the fear that God has forgotten you. Trust that his timing will be perfect and rejoice that your struggles have a purpose in your sanctification, that they provide you an opportunity to bear witness to his grace. And let me encourage you, church, listen, stay steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Wherever God has you, whatever kind of trial he may have you under, whatever kind of pit you find yourself having to endure, Live for the Lord and depend on the Lord. The key to consistent character is to remember the God who remembers you. That's what Joseph is showing us. He will not forget his covenant-keeping God. And when we do the same, we can endure faithfully and consistently for him. Secondly, when enduring the pit of a prisoner, uh, that, that's what we're called to, but, but also we need to remember the God who remembers you when enjoying the palace of a prince. And it's interesting because what we have here, isn't it fascinating? We have in one sense uh, the two extreme bookends of any human life. Think about that for a minute, okay? All in just two chapters, we have the most extreme kind of experience and circumstances you might be able to find yourself in. You have a, a man who's thrown unjustly into a pit as a prisoner, and then all of a sudden we're going to see in this chapter, he finds himself standing as a prince in a palace, and I want to encourage you with that because I think in a sense, as we see this picture, we're, we're, we're supposed to see, again, that God is sovereign over every experience we have in this life, over the bookends of our life, and therefore everything in between we may experience. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign control. In, in verse 1, it says this. Remember, uh, the, the, the cupbearer forgot him, and notice this, verse 1, after two whole years... You have to think that as Joseph was there in that pit, he's thinking, oh, this is great. This guy's got out. It was Pharaoh's birthday. Surely this guy's going to remember me. But he didn't. I bet you every day for at least six months, 
Every day, Joseph woke up saying, maybe this is the day. (laughs) And then he resigned himself, probably, to this reality that was probably going to be his life until God so chose to intervene. And, And I think this is an important part of Joseph's journey. Don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in man. Right? Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the Lord our God. And I would say corresponding to that, we don't put our, our hope in man, but corresponding to that, we don't fear man either. And that actually explains how Joseph operates in this chapter in the presence of Pharaoh. In other words, the consistency of his character is seen whether he's in the pit or in the palace, whether he's a prisoner or whether he's a prince. And again, uh, we're working on two, so we see that in two ways, um, that he's first, he's committed to depend on the Lord. You're like, Ian, you already did that point. I know, that's my point. But that's my point. Is he's, he's unchanged. That's my point. You get it? He doesn't change. It doesn't matter where he is. He's going to depend on the Lord. It doesn't matter what his circumstances are. In the same way, he will choose to depend on the Lord. And, and loved one, listen. If you don't get this, if you don't get this, your circumstances will end up controlling your life and they will compromise your character. If you change based on your circumstances, it means your character is not rooted in conviction, it's rooted in circumstances, okay? We we see here, we're brought into the, the throne room, so to speak, of Pharaoh after two whole years. Verse one, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, that's mean, they came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And these are disturbing dreams. And in the ancient world, dreams were a very big deal. In fact, dreams have played a big deal in the the story of the patriarchs in Abraham and in Isaac and in Jacob and in Joseph, as we've seen Dreams were part of the way that God communicated to his people. And here they thought that this was the God sending a message. And so they would gather all of their magicians, all of their sorcerers, all of their wise men. And they would, you know, in an occultic kind of way, try to understand what the gods were communicating. Pharaoh is deeply troubled by these dreams. And you'll notice, by the way, um, that in his dream, there are multiples of seven. Did you catch that? Seven. 
And, uh, and seven is a very important word, especially in the book of Genesis. Seven is, is God's number, and seven is a number of perfection or completion. And throughout Genesis, we've seen this time and time again. It's, it's one of the ways that we're being clued into the fact, again, that God is sovereign over the world. God will have his way. God will do exactly what he plans. And so what you'll see is that as this chapter unfolds, he repeats the dream, and the number seven is repeated four times. Seven, 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 seven. It's just like, it's, it's again, it's like, it's like Moses, he's so brilliant. The word of God is so beautiful. It's like Moses, another little subtle way of just saying, don't you see that God's sovereign over everything? Nobody can interpret these dreams. And he's desperate. And then verse nine, the cub bearer said to Pharaoh, notice these words, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me in the chief and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant, the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and he interpreted, as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then it says that Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him, I love this, this is one of the best statements here, they quickly brought him out of the pit. Can you just feel Joseph's life about to change? lifted out of this pit and when he shaved himself and changed his clothes he came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream you can interpret it and look at Joseph he wants no accolades he doesn't think that this is a gift that belongs to him he gives credit where credit is due Joseph answered Pharaoh it is not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer This is just a remarkable passage. And, and here, what we see is that he goes on to tell Pharaoh exactly what these dreams mean. The dreams are rehearsed, and he's going to give him an interpretation. But I want to just note here that as we look at um, Joseph, there are striking parallels between Joseph and another figure in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Daniel. And this is intentional on the part of the biblical authors and the Spirit of God. We're supposed to see the parallels between these two men. Both of these men uh, were essentially captives, weren't they, were they not, in a foreign land. Both of these men held fast to their Jewish, their Hebrew identity. Both of these men uh, were significant and rose to positions of power. Both of these men were thrown into a pit. Both of the, for unrighteous, unjustly, for righteousness sake, both of these men were lifted out of the pit and eventually exalted to the right hand of power over all the nations. And both of these men, listen, are pointing us to one who had a greater humiliation, who went down into a deeper, darker pit. His name was Jesus Christ, who was raised from the grave and exalted to the right hand of someone far greater than Pharaoh, to the right hand of God the Father, who is ruler and creator of all. Make no mistake about it. All the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
And there's a sense Joseph here is preparing the way for the exodus. We're going to see that at the very end of this book. The exodus from Egypt as this is going to be accomplished through Moses. In the same way Daniel precedes the new exodus that's going to be accomplished through Jesus. Man, I love the word of God. I just, I just you know, I just, I, I, I pray, I pray for me, I pray this for you Every single week as our church family, one of the greatest prayers I have for my life and for yours is that we become a people more and more who just love the word of God. It's so beautiful. It's so precious. It's so powerful. And it points us to the word of God, Jesus Christ. Nothing changes in your life. Nothing. You will not have Christ-like character. You will not form uh, deep, courageous convictions until you love the word of God and the God of the word. You won't. It's not possible. You need to pray every day. Let me encourage you. Every day you get up and open God's word. Before you read it, pray, God, help me to love your law. Help me to love your word. Help me to want to want you more. Help me to long for the spiritual milk of the word so that I may grow up into salvation. Just pray. Pray that. Pray that God ignites a fire in your heart for the word of God. And watch how God begins to transform your life as a result of that. The strength of Joseph's character is the result of the strength of Joseph's convictions about the word of God. Let me say that again. It's so important. The strength of Joseph's character is the result of the strength of Joseph's conviction about the word of God. Your character will only ever be as strong as your convictions about the word of God. And that is often evidenced, evidenced excuse me, in our, our boldness and our willingness to speak for God, to declare truth for God, regardless of the consequences. Boldness comes from a deep trust in God and his word. And Joseph here is displaying that. You have to kind of put yourself, we think like, well, this must have been really nice. Joseph, he's got a haircut. He's, he's been able to shave. He's out of that dark, stinky, filthy pit. And now he's standing before Pharaoh. What a great day. Except, except that his life is on the line. And what he says may determine how his life ends. It's no small thing to stand before the most powerful ruler in the world, especially in the ancient world. And he's not only standing before the ruler of the ancient world, he's confronting all of this ruler's gods. I mean, confronting them. I mean, with what Joseph's about to say, he's essentially saying, your gods are worthless. They have no power. Your, your best men, magicians, they could do nothing with your dreams, and that's because their gods are no gods. That's, in effect, what he's communicating. And he's communicating there's only one God, and he's got all the answers. Joseph was aware that God was speaking through him and he was bold before Pharaoh and boldness in the, I just want you to see this, he's as bold in the pit as he is in the palace. 
Isn't that awesome? Like, I, I, you get as a prisoner, you're like, okay, well, maybe, like, what, what else can they do to me? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more they could do to him. But he's like, I'll tell you the truth. And I, even, if it's, even if you don't want to hear it, even if you're not going to like it, and he's going to stand before Pharaoh and he's going to tell him exactly what God says, regardless of the consequences, no matter how hard it is to hear. And I think this is so relevant for us today. There are too many Christians today who are intimidated by the presence of worldly opposition. And let's face it, our world is very much opposed to God's truth today. In, in a lot of ways, it's part of the reason we've been going to the book of Genesis. We've been trying to lay the foundations of what God's word says and what's true. And we know that so much of what God's word says right from the very beginning is running against the grain of what our culture is pumping at us and promoting and affirming and telling us we must affirm. And if we don't, well, then it's going to cost us. There are other Christians who are enamored by worldly glory and the worldly glory, maybe in particular, of political leaders. But like Joseph, we too are, are ambassadors for the Lord. We're, we're called to be heralds of the truth. And he's given us, church, the only message that can save. He's given us the, the message that can save people from their sins. And it is a message, as Jesus promised, that's going to divide uh, not just relationships, but families it's going to be offensive. That the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that's going to invite persecution. First Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 4. Again, listen to Paul, someone who was no stranger to speaking the truth and suffering for it. He says this, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see what he was doing? He's doing the very same thing as Joseph. I'm not here to please you. I'm not, I have no permission to change the message. I am here to speak for God. Do with the message what you will, but I will speak only what God gives me to speak. Every pastor is charged with this in 2 Timothy 4. But this, hear this, even as, as a Christian today, listen, I charge you in the presence of God, Paul writes to Timothy, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into men. Myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fill your ministry. Church, listen, we depend on the Lord and we declare truth with the conviction that God's word is actually true. It is actually God's word and we have nothing else of eternal value to offer anybody in this world, but we have everything, everything they need for life and godliness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 25 through 35, uh, Joseph gives the interpretation. We won't read all of it, 
But it says that the the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Again, Joseph's dependence upon God. This is all, all God's doing. And uh, look at verse 28. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he tells him, there will be seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after that, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, there it is, means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. And then he goes on to to help Pharaoh. He gives him counsel in terms of what to do. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine. The Lord is revealing the next 14 years. I just, I wonder if God, if God revealed to you the future, if God, just humor me, if God revealed to you how all of this is going to end, if God gave a book to you, if God sent a messenger with a message telling you how you could be saved, how you could avoid total and utter destruction, how you could be saved from your sin, how you could be lifted out of the pit of death, how would you respond? I don't, I, mean, I don't know how you got here today. I, mean, I assume you drove, but that's not what I mean. I don't, I, don't know if, I, don't, I don't know if you were invited here today. Maybe it's your first time. You know, maybe, maybe you've just been confused and you, 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 you kind of Googled a church and this popped up. Maybe you were driving down the road and unexpectedly and unexplained, you just suddenly jerked the wheel into the parking lot and you just walked in here. You don't even know how you got here. I have no idea why you're here but I know who brought you here. I know there's a God who's sovereign over all the events of your life and mine. And this God has sent a messenger for you. He sent a messenger named Jesus Christ and the messenger is God himself. This is how much God loves you. He saw you in the pit of your sin and he saw you unable to rescue yourself. And you know what he did? He came from heaven to earth to rescue you to lift you out of that pit, to forgive your sins, to pay for them in full. He was raised out of the pit so that you could be raised out of the pit. The question you need to ask is this, what what will you do with the messenger and what will you do with the message of salvation? Will you do this? Lastly, will you live for the Lord? Pharaoh's response is to accept this. It's remarkable. And in fact, he, he says in verse 37, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne, that will I be greater than you. He puts him in charge of everything. And then what we find out is that Joseph is going to do everything that God uh, instructed him to do. He's going to work as hard in the prison as he is in the, in the palace, excuse me, as he did in the prison. He's going to be faithful to the very end to do everything. I love Pharaoh's response. He takes immediate action. And I want to encourage you today, take immediate action when you hear the message of God for you. When God speaks to you, if you're an unbeliever and God's offering you salvation, grab a hold of it, believe it by faith, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and enjoy life eternal in Christ. If you're a believer and the word of God goes forth to you through the messenger of God, through the word of God right in front of your face, then listen, take immediate action. Don't delay, don't wait, don't hesitate, don't make excuses. Just do exactly what God calls you to do. And I promise you, you will be deeply blessed because of it. Just live for the Lord. You live for the Lord only by responding to his word. Only by obeying his word. And I, I love this because in an instant, what we see is Joseph's life is flipped upside down. Just think about this. Again, moments ago, he was a prisoner in a pit, and now he's being crowned Prince of Egypt. That's how quickly your life can change. That's how quickly God can work. But let me warn you, as quickly as your circumstances can change is how quickly your character can change. If your character is not tethered to your convictions, but tethered to your circumstances, you will compromise, you will capitulate. It's just a matter of time. Joseph does not change. He does not change. He's young. He receives all this power. He gets an Egyptian name. He's given, we're finding out here, an Egyptian wife who happens to be the daughter of an Egyptian priest and we're left asking this question, will the change of status change his character and his commitment to live for the Lord? And the answer is no. He lives for the Lord with consistency in his character. Why? Why? Because he remembered the God who remembered him. He never believed that what happened was a result of his own doing. He was seeing that through it all, God was in control. God was making this happen. Every interpretation, every dream, God has conducted the events of his life to bring him to this exact moment. The only question is, how will you respond in the moment? How do we know he remembered the Lord? Well, as we, we close here, I want you to just see this. He, he ends up getting married, and he has two children, Look at verse 50. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh is an important name. It's derived from the word forgot. And the reason for the name is given here that God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. In other words, the name Manasseh praises God for delivering him from the hardships that he had experienced from his own family. And we see again, he's not fixated on his past, he's focused on his God. 
But the second son here we read is named Ephraim. And notice what Ephraim means. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The explanation is that God is making me fruitful. God has been in control. God has remembered. God has blessed God has not left me or forsaken me. God has not forgotten me. He is the God who remembers. And then as the passage ends, it says that seven years of plenty, in verse 53, that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says, you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, just catch catch the implications of the gospel here, the trajectory of this passage. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. We cannot miss seeing that Joseph is the forerunner who points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who willingly came from heaven to that darker pit of death, the one who died on the cross and was raised from the dead to a higher point of elevation than Joseph could ever experience. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says that God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This God is the same God who takes us out of the pit and places our feet upon the rock. Verse 